Why does Peter get dressed before he throws himself into the sea? It's a strange thing to do, right? I mean, most of us take our clothes off if we're going to go swimming. Uh, but Peter puts on this bulky outer garment and throws himself into the sea. Why does Peter jump in the water at all? I mean, they're only just a, maybe 100 yards off the shore. They could just row in. It's a strange scene right here at the very end of John's Gospel. But perhaps a scene some of us might understand this morning. So I'd like us to walk around in Peter's story for a while as we hold on to that question and see where our own stories perhaps intersect with Peter's. This week, we have an opportunity as a community to engage in a sustained conversation about addiction, uh, com compulsivity, and recovery. For some of us, this will just be another interesting week in our seminary career. Uh, we will gain some new information that we didn't have before. We'll find some new facts, some new data, and uh, that will be our experience of this week. For others of us, we've already decided we're not going to come to chapel this week. Uh, we're not going to go to any of the seminars or workshops because we've decided this really has nothing to do with us. But for some of us, the conversation we're going to have this week is our story. Uh, a story perhaps that no one else on this campus knows. A story that is still being written uh, on the tear-stained pages of our life. And for all of us, as Jessica said, regardless of our personal stories, the communities in which we worship and we serve are full of people broken by the power of addiction and compulsions in their life, many of whom do so in secret. Often because of the way we in the church talk about sin and brokenness and purity and, yes, holiness. Because sometimes the ways we talk about holiness and sin, uh, which we believe will bring hope to people, which will lead people into repentance and into the freedom that we long for them, uh, all too often instead bring the exact opposite. Leads people into shame, leads people into isolation and into despair. Bonhoeffer, in his beautiful little book, Life Together, says that sin demands to have a person alone, by themselves. And the tragedy is that all too often in the church we create the same scenario in the ways that we encounter people's brokenness. We sit next to people week after week whose hands are raised in worship even as a fist clenches their heart. People who are desperate to find freedom. Freedom from the behavior that does provide relief from the pain in the moment and despair immediately afterwards. Perhaps even more so, people desperate for the freedom from the guilt and shame that follows what we do. The good news is that the God whose story unfolds in the pages of the Bible is the God of the Exodus. That identity-forming event in the life of God's people, Israel. You want to know who I am? I am the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, those in bondage, and I come down to set them free. 
The God who brings relief from bondage. The God who shed our frail flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, who at the beginning of his public ministry got up in his hometown in the synagogue and read from the Isaiah scroll saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to those in bondage, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The story of God is the story of liberation. It is the story of the God who hears our cries and comes down to set us free. The God who loves us. The God who knows us. The God who longs for us, you and I, to be the human beings we were created to be. A kingdom of priests, a holy people, Women and men who know in the very core of their being that they are the beloved of God. Women and men who live our lives before God, naked and unashamed, as it was in the beginning and will be in the end. But we're in the middle, and nakedness for so many of us is not where we want to live. Many of us hide among the trees, like those first humans, trying to cover our shame, our nakedness. I wonder how many of us, even in here this morning, are hiding in plain sight on this campus. I wonder how many of us walk the halls and the paths of Asbury Seminary with this thought in our head, if all these people really knew what I was like, if all these people really knew what I do. I wonder how many of us desperate for freedom show up every time the Eucharist is served anywhere on this campus or in any church around. And we come to the liturgy of confession and our liturgy is general. But we sin in very specific ways. And we make that confession and all of that stuff comes. And we are so scared that we will be exposed, that people will find out, that someone will walk in and catch me in the act. For many of us, I think we're haunted by this one thought. How can I say I love Jesus and then do that? I wonder if that's the thought that haunted Peter after that moment in the courtyard of the high priest on the night that Jesus was arrested, I wonder if Peter knew something of the shame that many of us live with, of the pain that so many of our neighbors know, but of which we are utterly unaware. Peter, impetuous, hot-headed, fiercely loyal Peter, who walked away from the only life he knew and perhaps could imagine for himself fishing to follow Jesus. Peter, who may not have understood all, or in fact very much, of what Jesus taught, but he was with Jesus, body and soul. Peter, who in that beautiful moment of vulnerability that Jesus offered when the crowds walked away, and he turned to the twelve and said, are you, are you going to go too? It's Peter who says, 
Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It's Peter who later splutters out, wait, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah of God. Peter who sees Jesus transfigured before his very eyes, standing with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets fully being fulfilled in this person. Peter, who was caught up in the storm with his friends and Jesus walks across the waves to be with them and it's Peter who yells out across the wind and the waves, if that's you, Lord, tell me to come to you and jumps out of the boat and into the waves. It's Peter to whom Jesus says at that last meal, they shared, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, when you have once turned back, strengthen your brothers. When once you have turned back, because you will turn away, Simon, you will fail. And Peter, impetuous as ever, says, that's not a possibility, Lord. But I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die for you. And I believe Peter believed that in that moment. And I believe many of you believe that. I love Jesus. I will not mess up. Maybe you can remember a moment when you made that promise to Jesus. The promise you made. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I will take on a huge chunk of debt for you, Lord. But Jesus tells Peter that before the night is out, he will deny that he even knows him. Not once, but three times. But Peter only reiterates, I would sooner die than do that, Lord. But then came that moment. That moment when Peter did what he swore he would never do. Luke's account of that night says that the third time Peter denied he knew Jesus and swore, he looked up and found Jesus looking at him in that moment, doing that thing. And in that moment, Peter is stripped naked. He is confronted with the truth of himself. The truth that he is capable of doing the very thing he swore he would never do. Didn't believe he was capable of doing. That no matter how much Jesus loved him and how much he loved Jesus, he could still do that. And Peter is utterly devastated and flees into the night sobbing. I wonder how many of us know that feeling all too well. The feeling that comes when we find ourselves doing the thing we swore we would never do or never do again. But then we do it again and again and again. That feeling that comes when we've experienced perhaps a powerful night of worship at our campus ministry or in the sanctuary of our congregation on a Sunday morning and we feel the living presence of the Holy Spirit among us and we are alive with all that God is doing and is going to do and then we get back to our dorm room or our home or we even make it just as far as our car in the parking lot and the emptiness or the fear or the pain or whatever it is suddenly returns and we turn not to God but to that thing, whatever it is we reach for, 
when we're feeling lonely or afraid or in pain. And in that moment, the guilt and the shame we feel is overwhelming. How many of us came to seminary carrying burdens we hoped and prayed would be lifted here? In fact, we came there exactly for that to happen. Secret addictions, compulsions, fears. How many of us came here desperate to be transformed and surely seminary was going to be the place where that happened? Because I'm going to be in chapel every day. I'm going to be studying the Bible with people like Ben Witherington. I'm going to be praying and learning all this stuff. And we come here, and for a while, things are different. And we begin to believe that is all behind me now. Until it isn't. Until we do it again. And in that moment, the weight of guilt and shame is crushing. How can I say I love Jesus and want to serve him and do that at seminary with my kids asleep in the next room with my husband waiting for me upstairs? How can I write a paper on sanctifying grace and then go back to my dorm room and do that? How can I teach a class on sanctifying grace or preach about sanctifying grace and then do that? That is a question I am very familiar with. I went to my first 12-step meeting in 1991 with a friend who was a recovering alcoholic. A year later, I found myself very unwillingly in a 12-step meeting for my own addiction. I had prayed for years and made promises for years and tried everything I knew to stop acting out, to no avail. But as I sat in those rooms and I began to listen to people's stories, and I heard people tell their secrets that sounded a lot like my secrets. As I was with people who made themselves vulnerable and naked with others, yet somehow without shame, I began to believe that it just might be possible for me to know the freedom that they apparently did. So I got a sponsor. I began to work the steps. I began to experience the freedom I longed for. And I put some time together. But the summer before I came to Asbury, I went back to England, and I relapsed. Just a couple of months before I was coming here to start a divinity degree, and all those voices came back. Who do you think you are, Sean? Just give up this idea that you can be a pastor. But I knew that that's what I was. And I knew that this was where I was supposed to be. And I had a choice to make. And so before moving here, I went back to my home group, and instead of getting up the next chip of time, I got a desire chip, a 24-hour chip, the chip that says, I have a desire to live a life free from addiction, free from secrets, because secrets will kill us. I was in another country when I relapsed. I could pretend it never happened, and no one would have known, except for me. And I wanted, and I want to live a life with no secrets. I want to be naked and unashamed. But I understand why Peter threw that robe on and jumped into the water that day. I remember when being naked was very threatening. Peter was on the other side of the worst day of his life, and just as Jesus said, he had been raised from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus had met with the twelve a couple of times 
The Gospels are silent as to whether Peter and he had ever had an interaction. Um, what John tells us, as we heard Mercy read for us, is that, that Peter, on this occasion, was with the other disciples, and he said, I'm going fishing. Jesus is alive, and Peter is going fishing. Back to his old ways, back to what he knows, back to what he's good at. No longer fishing for people, back to fishing for fish. I don't think it's because Peter doesn't love Jesus. I don't think it's because Peter has given up on Jesus. I think it's because Peter has given up on himself. He can't live with his failure. So he goes back to the only thing he, other thing he knows, which is fishing. But wouldn't you know he can't even do that anymore, apparently. And then some stranger on the shore invites them to try again. And suddenly Peter's world is literally upended as they haul that catch of fish into the boat. And then someone says, it's the Lord. And Peter looks and covers his nakedness and throws himself into the sea. He doesn't call out like he did before. If that is you, Lord, tell me to come on the waves to you. Peter is no longer interested in all of that. He just wants to get to Jesus. And as he stands before Jesus on the shore, his robe heavy from the weight of water pouring off of his head, he might have expected to find judgment and condemnation waiting for him. But what is waiting for him? When the others pull the boat up, Peter goes over and drags the net manly onto shore by himself. And then the disciples eat breakfast with Jesus. I imagine in silence. And after they have eaten their fill, Jesus turns to Peter. And I can only imagine in that moment what Peter was thinking. Here it comes. At best he's going to say, told you you'd deny me. At worst he's going to look me in the eye and say, how could you possibly do that? Maybe Peter's been imagining this conversation over the past few weeks. And the truth is, Jesus could have said those things. He could have condemned him and the others for letting him down in his hour of need. But instead of pointing the finger, Jesus makes himself vulnerable with his friends again. And he says, Simon, not Peter, Simon. Taking him right back to the beginning again. Do you love me more than these? More than your friends, more than your nets, more than your boat? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lamb. And then he asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter is wounded. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And I don't think Peter is making a theological declaration about Jesus' omniscience in that moment, as much as we like making theological declarations in seminary. I think Peter's saying, you know all things. You know I messed up royally. And you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep 
Why does Jesus ask him three times? I wonder if it's not so Jesus can hear Peter's answer, but so that Peter can hear Peter's answer. So Peter can hear himself say, I love you, as many times as he said, I don't know him. Jesus invites Peter to tell the naked truth about himself, and he does. He takes him right back to the place of his failure, the memory that haunts him, and there restores him. And Peter, Jesus is not just restoring Peter to friendship between them. He's also restoring him to the call to lead the community of disciples. Because he says, shepherd my sheep. Not go and be a fisher of men and women. From now on, you, Peter, are going to do what I have done. And Jesus has this conversation, this restoring conversation with Peter in the presence of the others, not to shame him, not to condemn him, but to affirm him in the midst of the very people he will lead, entrusting them to Peter's care now, as he has cared for them. The same Peter who denied he even knew Jesus will now lead the community who gather in Jesus' name. And then I think Jesus gets up, begins to walk down the beach with Peter, continuing the conversation. He looks Peter in the eye and invites him back into relationship, just as he did in the very beginning with the same words. Follow me. So this week, we have an invitation to participate in a conversation. For those of us who are living with addiction or compulsive behavior, living with this crippling guilt and shame that we're so afraid to tell anyone about, that we're so afraid to be vulnerable, to tell our secrets, to be naked before God and another human being. And the sad truth is we might be very right to be afraid to do that. Because what might be waiting for us is not the warmth of breakfast, but cold judgment. But for those of us who are experiencing that, perhaps the invitation this week is to be like Peter, to throw on a robe and show up at some of these opportunities and just listen. And maybe in one of those conversations, we'll smell some fresh baked bread that smells like acceptance, that smells like understanding, that smells like hope. For others of us, the invitation this week will be to take off the robe, perhaps for the first time, to find someone who's safe and begin to tell our secrets to them. For all of us, all of us, the invitation is to participate in these various conversations, to learn more about addiction, to learn more about not what the church has to offer people who are addicts, but what the recovery community has to offer the church. Because so many of us, the people we will be in ministry with and to will be affected by addiction. Just about everything you do is one step removed from that world. And it is possible to graduate from seminary, even Asbury Seminary, with no more understanding of addiction or practical wisdom or even empathy for those who are suffering in our midst. If you came here to answer a call to vocational ministry, if you have heard Jesus say, follow me, and you did here, but you are living with addiction and secrets, if you are hiding your pain and despair in plain sight, Hear the good news once more. You are the beloved of God. Even in that place when you're doing that thing, you are loved. In your worst moments, you are loved. When you feel so lost, you can be found. 
when you can't imagine stopping that thing you do, you can be liberated from the very compulsion itself to act out. How do I know this is true? Because it is my story. Because in my third year at Asbury Seminary, when I put behind me the behavior, I experienced here one of the promises of the 12 steps, and I believe the very heart and truth of sanctification, which is not just freedom from compulsive behavior, but freedom from the compulsion itself. That is what I longed for, so that when I feel pain, my first response is not to turn to that. And I have lived in that freedom for the last 16 years. And you can too. If you're like Peter in that boat this morning, if you feel naked and so ashamed that you want to throw a robe on to cover yourself, then hear me when I say, look, it's the Lord. Throw on whatever robe you need to put on to get to where Jesus is this week to discover him waiting not with judgment or condemnation for that thing that makes you want to cover yourself up, but with breakfast. And the truth, the invitation to hear the truth about yourself, the truth that will set you free. Amen.